Well, morning. So I guess it wasn't how I was going to start, but Gary and Judy, congratulations, 63 years married today, which, uh, so I mean, it's two amazing compliments, amazing Judy that you get to be here and join us. And, and what a gift to our church to have a marriage here that's been going for so long and still so in love. Uh, so that, that is a huge prophetic declaration to our church. So we hope that the marriages here will follow in your footsteps. So hopefully in 50 or 60 years, I'll be able to say I'm married as long as you. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, happy birthday, Mike, wherever he, he is. He's there in the back. Happy birthday, Mike. Awesome. Um, so we are uh, in the home straight of this series going through the book of Acts, this uh, re-looking at and trying to rediscover the mission of the church. Like, what is our identity as the church? And so we're trying to recover that. We're in the home straight. Only a few more chapters to go till we hit the end. Um, and at the end of the day, what this series is about, you know, if we're not living missionally, we're not doing what the church is supposed to do. And there are some theologians that go as far as to say when the church fails to engage in the mission of God, it fails to be the church. So if if we can call ourselves the church, but if we're not living this mission, then we have to pick a different name because we're not the church. The church is an agency on mission. Um, What I want to do this morning, though, it's it's Independence Day, um, an important day in the calendar, but I want to spend some time today reframing today. Like, what is Independence Day, and how do we reframe this day to be beneficial to our growth as Christians? So I think I've shared this uh, in passing before, but I interviewed uh, a guy called Dennis Fuque, who leads International Christian Renewal Ministries, and uh, our International Renewal Ministries, and he heads up these things called Pastor Prayer Summit. So he meets, uh, he goes all around the U.S. and around the world, gathering pastors together for seasons of prayer. And so as I was interviewing him, I asked him the question, uh, what is the biggest obstacle you face when you go into a city and you try and get pastors to gather together to pray? What's the biggest obstacle to pastors praying together? And he said, it's the independent spirit. He said, pastors think they can go alone and that they don't need the other pastors in the city. Why gather with pastors to pray? Because I've got my own church, I've got my own team. I don't need the other pastors in the city. I don't need the other churches. And he said, it's this thing, it's it's hard to wrap your head around when you're not from here. Uh, And he said, you know, we grew up here celebrating Independence Day. Everything about our American identity is wrapped around the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And one of the things we celebrate in American culture culture is a spirit of independence. He said, what we need to do when we become Christians is tear up our declaration of independence and sign a declaration of dependence on God and on one another uh, to carry his mission forward into the world. And and that was almost a year ago he said that to me and it's, it's stuck with me because I have signed a declaration of independence in my own walk with Jesus and in my own way of operating in the world and I wanna tear that up and walk in dependence. So we're gonna look at this. And, and essentially I want to reframe a day like today. Yes, let's celebrate the independence of the country. Let's celebrate America as an amazing nation that gets to lead in powerful ways around the world. But let's reframe this day so that every 4th of July as we come to it, we don't just celebrate American independence, but we celebrate our dependence on the one that created us. 
So here's what I wanna do. I wanna start by giving you Merriam-Webster's definition of independence, because here's the deal. Independence is antithetical to the gospel. So this is Merriam-Webster, great American dictionary. I didn't go with Oxford, because it's independence from England, right? So this is an American dictionary, their definition of independence. So it says independence means not dependent, such as not subject to control by others. We're self-governing, not affiliated with a larger controlling unit, not requiring or relying on something else, not looking to others for one's opinion or for guidance in our conduct, not bound by or committed to a political party, not requiring or relying on others as for care or livelihood, being enough to be f- to free one from the necessity of working for a living, showing a desire for freedom. How much does that sound like the gospel? <laughs> don't be controlled by God. Don't be a part of a church family. Don't allow the Bible to govern the way you live your life. Don't look at your fellow believers for wisdom and input and guidance. Slack off and don't work for a living. Um, The only one at the bottom, a desire for freedom is a good biblical thing. We want freedom from our sin. We want freedom from brokenness. But this is the Merriam-Webster definition of independence. So we're celebrating independence today. And independence, by its definition, is antithetical to the gospel. Um, We celebrate freedom from oppressive rule. But in the process, we don't realize we're celebrating the spirit of independence that has seeped into the church and distorted how we live out the gospel. Let me flip it though. Let's look at Merriam-Webster's definition of dependence. What's dependence? It says being determined or conditioned by another. You might want to put a capital on the O. Uh, relying on another for support. Uh, grammatically, it refers to being subordinate to something or being subject to another's jurisdiction. So when you think about the Bible and you think about the gospel, which of those definitions looks most like what the Bible teaches? Dependence, not independence. Um, and so this is how I want to frame today, cheesy play on words, but I think it's powerful. And uh, We have to reframe what we celebrate every July 4th. We don't want to celebrate a a spirit of independence. We want to look at today and all of the flags and all the banners saying Happy Independence Day. And as Christians, we want to change this in our mind to Happy Independence Day. Because this is a day where we at the church get to reclaim it and say, I'm going to declare today that I am living independence on the Father through the power of the Spirit with my eyes fixed on Jesus. So we're in uh, Acts chapter 23. So I want to jump into the story and pick up. Um, and I want to look at, and I want you to think as we're reading about Paul as a dependent person. So where in this story do we see Paul living in dependence, whether intentionally or indirectly? Um, so you have to remember last week as we were looking, there were a bunch of riots happening. Remember, uh, people are annoyed that they think Paul has taken a Gentile into the temple. They stir up this mob, they're like beating him up, they're about to kill him, a soldier appears, calms everyone down and Paul's like, hey, give me another chance. And then he speaks to this crowd that's trying to kill him and they flare up again. Then he's before the Sanhedrin and they are rejecting the message that he's bringing. So he says the most divisive thing he can think and a big argument erupts in the Sanhedrin and he just sits back like, ha, uh, I know how to play you guys. Um, and then he's taken into Roman custody. And this is where we get to in this part of the story. 
Acts 23, starting in verse 12. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Now just remember, this is a bunch of Jewish people who claim to be following Jesus, or not Jesus, claim to be following Yahweh, um, following the law, and the story opens with their murderous intent towards someone. So something's a little off. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. So do you see the disgusting irony in this moment? We're gonna deceive you and take this guy's life by pretending that we care about the truth. Come on, we're gonna, we're gonna get more accurate information when in fact we're just gonna kill him. It's so messed up. Uh, when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and he told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and said, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They are ready now waiting for your consent to the request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called, and I want you to pay attention to the numbers here. He's trying to take Paul somewhere. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight under the cover of darkness. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. See that 472 guys is the security that we can get Paul where we're going. So if you think about the extent of the riots that are happening, if you think of the hatred that they have towards Paul, so much so that they're willing to take an oath that I will not eat again until this guy is dead. Like this is serious stuff. Uh, and the number of people that they're taking to protect this journey uh, shows just how intense things have gotten. So provide horses for Paul so he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And, and then he wrote this letter as follows. Uh, Claudius Lucius to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and I rescued him. For I learned that he's a Roman citizen. Notice that he doesn't mention the part about taking him in and about to flog him. And then Paul's like, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. You shouldn't do this. Uh, so he's, he's painting himself in a really good light here. Um, I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against this man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. 
When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard until Herod's palace. I don't know if I'm the only one. I feel so intense when I'm reading through this and you see what's going on. It's like, even though I know where the story's going, it's like, what's happening? Um, so what I wanna do now, we're gonna do some Bible 101. So hopefully what I'm about to say is not surprising and should be very, very clear. But I wanna just walk through this passage and look at four ways that we see dependence in Paul, just displayed in the passage and then we'll go on and talk about what this means for us. Um, so the first one, I'm gonna call this dramatic irony, but Paul is dependent on God in this part of the story, and we know this, um, and partly that Luke, as he's writing Acts, has set us up for this. Um, so Acts 23, he's, he said, and I've, it says in the story the next night, but in terms of where we're at today, it's the previous night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So this story that we're seeing has been set up. God is sovereign over Paul. God has a plan to take Paul to Rome, and the first thing that happens when God makes this promise is all of these people try to oppose the work of God. And so Paul can have confidence in here. He's dependent on this God to fulfill the promise that God has made to him. Makes sense, right? So Paul is dependent on God here. This whole story is dramatic irony. So we know what the story is. We know that, that God has made this declaration to Paul. We know the trajectory that he's on. And we know as we're reading the story that it doesn't matter what they try and how many people swear an oath to starve themselves to death until Paul is killed. It doesn't matter what is stirred up. God's will will happen. So it, it, this part of the story. Paul is entirely dependent on God as he's walking through the events that God has planned for his life. The second thing, Paul is dependent on numerous people. Um, and so you see this moment with his nephew, the, it says the son of his sister. I, I'm always curious why they list it the way they do and they don't just say it's his nephew. Maybe they didn't have that word back then. Um, there's him dependent on the centurion as he says, hey, come and bring this message. The centurion going to the commander and the commander responding to it properly. He's dependent on this army. He didn't know that when God says you're gonna go to Rome that he would require an army of almost 500 people to get him there and um, to get him through Jerusalem and um, so he's dependent on this army so I mean you think of God's sovereignty and stationing enough people in Jerusalem that when Paul needed protection to get from where he was to Caesarea that there was this army ready to guide him and then at the end of the story he's dependent on Felix uh, Felix uh, taken his case uh, been willing to, to engage with the situation that's at hand so you've got in this part just just this little story You've got them dependent on family. You've got them dependent on uh, government officials. You've got them uh, dependent on the area ruler. And, and it's interesting because none of these people are Jewish people. So at this point in the story, the Jewish people, God's people, are the ones trying to kill Paul, while the Gentile people that they're saying are cut off from God and can't ever be in relationship with them are the one that are carrying God's message so that it can get where it needs to go. It's, it's, it's so upside down. Um, but Tacitus, 
is a Roman historian, probably the most famous Roman historian. And he describes Felix, he says, this is a man who practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with all the instincts of a slave. So the guy that Paul is dependent on here to help him fulfill the calling that God has placed on his life is this evil, wicked, horrible ruler that historians from the Gentile world are like, this guy is awful. Um, He's dependent on people. Third thing, he's dependent on various systems performing the way they should. You've got this this part in the story. I found the accusations had to do with questions about their law, so there's no charge against him in terms of our law that would make him worthy of death. I was informed of a plot carried out against him, so I sent him to you. Uh, And then I've ordered people to present the case to you. So there's a system in their government. There's a chain of command. There's a legal system. And all of these things were set up uh, outside of, uh, of God's plan with Jesus kind of, because God's sovereign. God has orchestrated Jesus to be born into a time when you're in a Jewish nation ruled by Roman principles. So then Paul comes into the scene. If Rome wasn't there, Paul would be killed by the Hebrews, right? He'd be killed by the Jews because under their law, they don't like it. But he's been brought in at a time where the Roman system is there. So this system actually serves to preserve Paul. What was Rome famous for? They put roads in, they made a common language, they had uh, governance that allowed people to travel from area to area. So everything about what has happened has placed systems in place that Paul is dependent on in order to do the things that he's he's done. Um, If you go back to the story we looked at last week, he's standing before the Jews. What's the system? I'm a Pharisee. Like, I'm a Pharisee. Hey, let's look at this system. Within the system, I'm the best at this. He's, he's taken and about to be beaten by the Romans, and he's like, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. There's a system, and there's certain things that need to happen within this system. And the ultimate, as he's standing, and, and are, are you gonna kill me or not? Well, I appeal to Caesar. And the answer is, you appeal to Caesar, so to Caesar you must go. Like, everything about the system, Paul is dependent on it as it takes him where he's supposed to go. Um, the last one, in here, he's, he's dependent on serendipitous circumstances. Serendipity is such a great word, especially divine serendipity. I like this word better than what we call coincidence, right? Divine coincidence. Um, this moment right at the beginning, when this plot, uh, when the son of Paul's sister heard of the plot, he went into the barracks and he told Paul. What serendipitous circumstance allowed that young man to hear the story? And what circumstances allowed him to get into the barracks? Like a young guy just been like, hey, I wanna go in and see Paul, I'm his nephew. Like no one has to let him in. The serendipity that as Paul goes to this this, uh, commander that's sitting next to him, that the commander actually receives the message and does something about it. That as he takes it to his commander that they actually honor Paul and the system and take him where he's supposed to go, that Felix actually receives the letter and says, yes, I'll take the case. Like all of this is dependent on these serendipitous events that are really the hand of God moving through circumstances to guide him into what he's doing. So all the way through, he's dependent on God, he's dependent on people, he's dependent on the system, he's dependent on these random events that God is orchestrating. So even though this story is not a story about dependence, for sure, it's showing Paul completely at the mercy of God, who is orchestrating all these events from before he was born to lead him to this moment. 
So when it comes to how we reframe today, you know, we're celebrating independence. We have to be careful that we don't celebrate and glory in the spirit of independence. But in the church, we have to actively resist an independent spirit in us. And as we're looking at this church and trying to rebuild and, and say, where are we going as a church? We can't do this independently. We have to resist an independent spirit as we cultivate the mission of our church. And each of us have to uh, resist the independent spirit that says, I want things in this church to go that, this way. Um, so we have to actively resist an independent spirit. So how do we do this? How do we throw off an independent spirit to live a life in dependence? And again, I'm gonna say some things that should be 101. This is a good reminder for us today of what we need. And I'm hoping scattered in here will be some other pieces that might be new to you. So if we wanna cultivate a, a dependent spirit, if we want to walk independence, we need to cultivate a sense of our need for God is number one. How do we cultivate a sense of our need for God? We've got to know his work. Like stories like this one we're reading that highlight the sovereignty of God over Gentile, non-believing nations and systems roundabout that he can use to guide his truth where it needs to go. Um, we need to know his word, to know what he's saying, what it is. We need to know he's in control, that he's sovereign. We need to know and be reminded through scripture that we are dependent on him for our very existence. I think we forget this all the time as believers. If God wills it for you to be done today, you're done. We think we're in control of the world. We can pave our own way. Uh, you know, like I'm this self-made person. I can go out there and make a difference in the world. You can only do it because there's breath in your lungs that he's put there. And uh, we need to remember we're dependent on him for our existence. Um, we need to know the way Christ lived and his example was one of dependence. This, this verse in John 5, as Jesus is explaining how he operated in the world. He says, I tell you, I can't do anything by myself. This is the ultimate dude on the world, right? I can do nothing by myself. I can only do what I see my father doing because whatever he does is what I do. The father loves the son. He shows him all he does and he will show him even greater works than these so that you'll all be amazed. So Jesus' posture on the earth is one of dependence. Everything he did was with his eyes fixed on the father through the empowerment of the spirit, walking through the world in complete dependence, choosing never to depart from the father's revelation. Um, so when we live in dependence, it's saying I'm gonna fix my eyes on Jesus and I'm gonna live this life dependent on the Father with my eyes fixed on Jesus through the empowerment of the Spirit and I'm gonna strive to only do in this world the things that he's revealing to me. Um, problems arise in our lives, in our families, in our church and in our mission when we take our eyes off of him and we start doing the things that we think are the right things to do in the situation rather than the things that he's revealing. So we've got to cultivate discernment. We've got to learn to listen to God together. We've got to learn to listen to one another. Um, we've got to cultivate and understand this need for God that's so hard in a world that tells us we don't need him and in a world that tells us independence is where it's at. We don't need God if we can function in the world as independent beings. Number two, how do you throw off uh, the self-dependent spirit? You have to know yourself. You have to know your strengths and weaknesses. Do you know yourself? Um, you've got these uh, contrasting verses in scripture, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Do you know your deceitful heart? 
Do you know the ways that your heart is trying to pull you in your flesh? Your heart is trying to pull you away from the things of God. Do you know the times when you're in a group and you're trying to figure out what God wants to do um, with this family, with this community, with our business, with our church? Do you know those moments? Are you aware of them when your heart is being deceitful and saying, I, want, I think we should do this thing when really what you're saying is I want control? When we're saying, I think we should form things this way, when really what you're saying is, that's my preference and I don't want anything to be any different. Uh, do you know the way your heart is trying to lead you away? Do you know when your politics takes priority over your faith? Uh, do you know when you're judging other people to make yourself feel better, uh, rather than because you're, you're standing in truth, coming alongside to support and help? Um, the other verse up here that's, that's the counterbalance to this, you know, our hearts are deceitful, but the promise of scripture in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'm gonna remove this heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. So we're, we're I love the contradictions of scripture, the tensions. We are these broken people with a heart heart that's deceitful, but we also have a renewed heart that is, as we're walking in faith and depending on him, we operate out of this new heart, this heart of flesh rather than the heart of stone. Do you know yourself? Do you know that you're made from dust? That at the end of the day, we are worthless beings outside of the fact that God created us and that our only worth is the fact that we're his cre creatures created by him for a purpose that we are these worthless sinners that have been turned into these glorified saints because of the work that he's done for us. And it's easy when we live this side of Jesus and 2,000 years after he was here, 2,000 years of church history, it's like Jesus loves us, he saved us. We forget that we're but dust. There's a reason like traditional funerals, you know, it's uh, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Like from the dust you came to the dust you returned. It's a reminder um, of who we are. Do, do you know? That, uh, that your value comes from him? Do you know that you're fallen? That you tend towards self-dependence? That when left to your own devices, you will always choose the thing that benefits you? Even when it's beneficial to someone else, because sometimes and often the thing that we want that's beneficial to someone else, we want because we wanna feel good about ourselves. So even in our most selfless moments, we're focused on self. Um, we, we need to know ourselves. We need to know God and know our need for him. We know, need to know self and know all of our brokenness. We also need to know our strengths, the gifts that he's poured into us, that remember, he poured into us. <laughs> that, that musical ability, that artistic ability, that administration ability is not yours. So when you build your identity around it, you're, you're stealing something from him and saying this is my identity rather than this is the gift that he gave me. Do you know these things? If we wanna reject an independent spirit and walk in dependence, it means acknowledging that the strengths we have are his. The weaknesses that we have cause us uh, to rely on him, that everything comes from him. Uh, the one part I wanna say in here too is, um, you can reject a spirit or resist a spirit of independence in favor of dependence, but there's another extreme you can go to which we call codependence, which is I'm now no longer my own person and my entire identity is governed by somebody else. The only place we're supposed to be codependent in the kingdom is with Jesus, right? His identity and his being should completely shape ours. But some people, it's like I'm independent, I don't want anybody 
We need to reject that in favor of depending on God and, and others. But what it looks like, what you think happens is what some people are codependent. So you're over here and it's like, I really need everyone and I have no sense of my own identity. How it actually works is you've got independence, which is I don't need anyone else. You've got dependence on God and others and you've got codependency, which is actually me trying to force my own independent identity around wrapping it in someone else. It's actually the, the flip side of the same coin. So an independent spirit and a codependent spirit are the same brokenness manifesting inside of us. We need to reject both of those to walk in dependence on God, on the people around about us, on the systems that he's put in place. Number three, if you wanna reject uh, uh, a spirit of dependence, we need others. Um, this is probably the biggest lie that comes with the spirit of independence of the West is the belief that we don't need anybody else. Like we celebrate self-made millionaires and self-made billionaires. Show me a self-made millionaire that didn't come out of his mother's womb, right? Not self-made, right? Made by a man and a woman. I'm not gonna explain how that happens. You can talk to Gary and Judy. They've done this. Don't, don't Google it, that's bad. Gary and Judy have walked this 63 years. They're qualified to explain this to us, right? <laughs> no one is self-made. Physically, no one is self-made. Um, when you look at people that are millionaires, billionaires, typically what happened, they got a lot of capital from their parents or from an investor that they put into something and it, it ends up being successful. They make a lot of money. They weren't self-made. They, they depended on someone else's income to get them where they went. You take things like Facebook. Facebook, how, how did he end up a, a gazillionaire? <laughs> how did he end up with so much money? He made this thing for his college that just happened to take off around the world. He didn't have a business plan for it to suddenly catch on all around the world. Uh, things going viral online, no one plans for it to go viral. You create a lot of videos hoping it's gonna go viral and make a lot of money, but no one's self-made. We're dependent on these other things to get there. We have to link with others, whether it's intentional. I'm gonna partner with you to accomplish this goal. We're gonna become business partners. We're gonna become financial supporters, uh, we're going to provide accountability and spiritual growth. Uh, and then a lot of it, like in Paul's situation, is the stuff that happens indirectly. Um, the, the school teachers that helped educate you, the failures that you encountered, the brokenness that you walked in, that, that are the ways other people impacted you that drive you toward the thing that God has for you. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, I mean, this is the, the core of this. Uh, you know, just as the body, though one has many parts, Paul writing to the Corinthian church and all of its divisiveness and brokenness, just as the body, though one has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. We were all baptized into one spirit to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong in the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If your ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop in part of the body. If the whole body were a giant eyeball, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were a giant ear, where would our sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head 
head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while the presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. We need to link with one another. It's the way God has designed us as humans. It's not good for man to be alone, so he made Eve for Adam. It's the way he's created the body of Christ. You can't look at people in here and say, I don't need that person. I can't say, I'm a pastor, I don't need you. You know, like we need one another and God has orchestrated it this way. Um, So in the church, we need to stop saying, I don't need you and start saying, I need the people in this room to help me grow into the image of Jesus. We can't look at our church and say, Alliance Bible Church doesn't need Calvary Chapel and it doesn't need New Hope and it doesn't need Tawalton Valley. We need the churches round about in order to do the work that God has called us to do. Um, So we gotta link with other people. Um, I think I've probably shared this story before, but it's a a story that is, uh, uh, you're gonna hear this over and over again to the point that you're gonna be able to share it for me. But um, yeah, you go back to 2011, 2012, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer, right? I've shared this story. And uh, we have this moment, I'm going through uh, chemotherapy, and I was one of those people that had a really adverse reaction to the drugs that I was getting. They were very effective in killing the cancer, but I had a very adverse reaction. I was vomiting all the time, and my white blood cells just completely tanked. So they were getting concerned, you've got no white blood cells, and so they gave me these things called GCSF injections, and so you grab your stomach, and you stab it into your stomach, and you squeeze the stuff in there, I was too chicken to do it myself, but I married a dental hygienist who gives anesthetics, so I was like, you can do it. Uh, <laughs> so they're like, I'll show you how to do it. I'm like, no, show my wife, please. I don't want to stab myself in the stomach. But what, what, these, what these drugs do is they cause the bone marrow inside of your body to swell up, and they call it sponging, in order to produce more white blood cells, so that as my white blood cells are tanking, because chemo's killed them out of my bloodstream, that then there's all these other, whew, that fly took me by surprise, demon. Um, uh, so as, as they're tanking out in my body, then this other white blood cells is there to be released into my bloodstream. But, but the thing that's horrible about it is it is basically causing the bone marrow inside of your bones to swell up. And I don't know if your bones are like mine, I assume they are, but they're closed, and there's not a lot of room inside of them. And so they give me these injections, and they tell me it's going to be painful, and you might want some painkillers, and If you're sore, please call us because many grown men call in crying because they're in so much pain and I'm like, I've got this. I've got high pain tolerance. And so they're like, you know, if it starts getting sore, take some ibuprofen, take some Excedrin, run a hot bath. Um, And so here I am this night, the the medication I can tell it's starting to to kick in and I'm just getting these aches basically from my knees to my lower back, all of the big bones in your body. And I remember like getting to this point where it's it's getting really sore, I'm taking painkillers, it's not helping, I'm lying in the bath, it's not helping. And it was like contractions. 
like um, just these waves of pain. Have I shared this before? Is this really familiar? So I'm lying on the couch, like, and if I stood up, it was sore. If I lay down, it was sore, because essentially your bone marrow is swelling up, trying to burst outside of your bones. And it's just excruciating, and so I'm lying there, and I just remember being on the couch, and I've got a really high pain tolerance, and I'd be lying, and all of a sudden, I'd feel this, like, I could feel it coming on, like, like contractions. I could feel something building up. <laughs> and then I'd wait, like, 30 seconds. I come again, and I'm sitting there, I'm, like, dying. And uh, one of our roommates who knows me for my high pain tolerance is looking at Monica going, is he gonna die? <laughs> And it was excruciating. Um, we survived, right? The next morning, I'm like, I'm not doing that again. We're calling for medication. Turned out I had the medication I needed in my house. <clears throat> A little side note, if I had called, they could have told me I had it. But the next day, I'm lying there because you take it like kind of afternoon and it kicks in kind of later in the evening. So I have reprieved during the day and I'm lying on the couch feeling miserable. I hardly slept. I was in pain. I'm terrified about this next night. And we're lying on the couch. Monica's sitting next to me and she turns around to me and she goes, you know what? I don't want this to come out wrong, but I'm going to look back at this moment as one, probably the sweetest moment of our marriage so far. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I did not marry the right person. No. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm kind of like, eh? And she's like, you are so independent. Like, you're so good at the things that you do. You, you, like, you've never needed me. And though we're married, I spend the whole time going, I don't really know what I can do to help you. You just do it yourself. So that this is the first time in our marriage where you need me and you're actually letting me serve you. The difference between me walking in a spirit of independence and me learning what it meant to walk in dependence. And that changed our marriage from that point onwards. Like I didn't realize then just been like, like I'm making the bed, I get three corners on, Monica's like, hey, I'll help you. I'm like, I've got it. And I throw the fourth corner on. She's like, I just wanted to help. I'm like, I can put a sheet on the bed, I don't need help, I've got it. And it's not to say I don't want your help, it was just like, I've got this, the spirit of independence that stopped me from linking up with others. And what that meant was in my faith, I, I was doing it, it's, all I need is me and God. We can deal with this sin issue, just me and God. I'll pray, I'll journal, I'll read the right books, I don't need anyone else to be part of it. There's a mission to do, there's a website to build, there's some people to share the gospel with, I've got this, let me at them. I don't need someone else to come with me, I don't need someone to drive me there, I don't need someone to teach me, I've got this. And all of a sudden, here I am, one big eye, <laughs> going, I got this. I'm probably more like one big mouth, right? I'm one big mouth, being like, I've got this. Um, and stopping everyone else from having the opportunity to do what they're doing. This is part of what we're trained in, in the Western cultural context. I've got this, I'm self-made. Be independent, you don't need anyone. You can do it yourself. With enough hard work and enough effort and enough faithfulness over time, you will get what you want. You don't need anyone else. But you need the training you got from people. You need the life you were given from someone. You need the breath that comes from the Lord. You need the breaks that are given to you by the right person and the right place at the right moment. You need those breakthroughs that come. We need to link with other people if we wanna walk in a spirit of dependence. 
Number four, we've got to respect the systems that God's put in place to work within. That doesn't mean we have to agree with the system. It doesn't mean we need to advocate for the system, but Romans 13, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. That means a school system. It means a government. It means a church elder board. It means the people that you don't like that are over you as your supervisors at work. It means the bureaucratic system that you're stuck in as you're applying for your rebate from your insurance. He says, consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. This is a scary verse. What it's not saying is to just blanket sit down and do all the evil things that are being asked of you. But it's telling us we have to respect the system, understand that God put it in place and that we've got to work within it. We're dependent on services and agencies and systems, school, banks, medical care, all these systems. We might not like them, but we live in dependence on them. We like to tell ourselves we're not. I can do it without those things. I can go off the grid, right? I'm gonna go off the grid. I'm gonna buy my food at Freddy's, but I don't need anyone. Just shopping clerks, right? I need a grocery store. I'm gonna grow my own food, but I'm gonna go down the street and buy the seeds from the farmer, but I don't need anyone, right? I need to do up my house. I can do it myself. I'm gonna buy my floor and I'm gonna put it in myself. Let's forget about the fact someone cut down the trees, sorted the wood, cut it all to size, delivered it to a warehouse, packaged it all, delivered it to my house. Then I went to Home Depot. I bought a drill that someone else had made because they'd gone to school. And it, you know, <laughs> we've got to respect the systems. This system includes the system of grace that God has put in place. Because there is a system that we sin, that through Jesus we get forgiveness. There's a system that each person in this church has been given a grace gift to help build up the body. We've got to respect and work within the system that he's given us. And it's a system that requires this missional identity to go. The last one, we have to honor serendipity. Proverbs 16, 9, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Paul wanted to go to Rome. Numerous times he says, I wanna go. When he wrote to the Roman church, he's like, I long to meet you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Like, if it's God's will, I'm gonna come to you. But he was dependent on these circumstances leading him uh, where God wanted. These are the, the lucky breaks, the being in the right place at the right time. Um, all of these things that we're dependent on. And we've got to stop kidding ourselves. As the church, as humans, we can make it alone, but we need him, we need the things he gives us, and we need the people that he's put in place around about us. So, from here on out, my encouragement to you is this. Every 4th of July, celebrate wholeheartedly happy independence, right? Celebrate independence, celebrate the throwing off of oppressive rule, celebrate the freedoms that we have in this country, but add to that and place over the top of that, celebrating that you've been called to live independence on God, independence on one another, and independence in the systems that he's put in place to guide his truth where it needs to go. So let's make this not a day of celebrating just America and freedom, but celebrating the God who gives it to us. And I, I, I just, these are the things I wonder if every Christian in America on Independence Day spent the day reflecting on how dependent on him they are and how dependent on others they are. We'd be sitting in a very different church in a very different country. Uh, and I think God's mission would be going far uh, more successfully in the direction that he wants it to go. Um, so I'm gonna pray and then uh, these guys are coming up and lead us in communion. 
Uh, God, it, it's hard. Pride, autonomy, um, a fall where Adam and Eve said, I want to be like God. I want to do it on my own. I'm going to reject what you said. I'm going to try and do it myself. Uh, fig leaves covering from one another, hiding. Adam hiding from Eve, covering up out of shame. Adam and Eve hiding from God. And this pattern of walking in the world, trying to do it alone. And yet Jesus comes and shows us dependence, dependence on the Father, dependence on the Spirit, pulling like this group of 12 guys together and a bunch of women circling this group to do life together. He was dependent on them. He had his three favorites that he'd hang out with all the time that were there in his moments of pain, dependent on them. And then what does he do? He has a mission to do on this earth. He doesn't do it himself. He leaves and sends us his spirit and entrusts us. So Jesus, you are dependent on us to fulfill your mission in the world. What a responsibility. Help us to mimic you and model you by rejecting the spirit of independence that cuts us off from others and start living in dependence on you and on one another so that your mission can be fulfilled in this world the way you desire. In Jesus' name, amen.